Welcome to Series 3 of The Joy of Writing. I'm your host, Mark Carew, author of three novels, and someone who's interested in how other writers write, why they do it, and the fun or joy they get from their writing. It's a pleasure to talk with Tyler Keevil again. In this episode, we hear about his experience of teaching creative writing and how it can take time for a writer to develop, and that's no bad thing. We also hear about an influential book that even years later still brings back the excitement of its discovery. Tyler, it's very nice to talk to you again. Um, in your day job, you teach creative writing to undergraduates and postgraduate students at Cardiff. Um, what is your approach to teaching the subject? Great question, big question. Um, essentially, I mean, there's certain things that are standard in creative writing uh, at most programs, one of them being the thing everybody hears about when it comes to creative writing is the writer's workshop, uh, which is, of course, integral. So that's where students will submit their work uh, yeah. to the tutor and their peers in advance. Uh, and then there's a shared critique um, mm-hmm. where we all give our feedback and talk about the pros and cons of the approach and what the student's done. So that's something that's kind of standard, and we obviously use that at Cardiff as well. I think it's equally important um, to study the craft and focus on great writers, both past and present. And actually, at both the institutions I've taught at, uh, University of Gloucestershire firstly, and then coming to Cardiff, uh, we had joint programs, so English literature and creative writing. Uh, And actually, Cardiff doesn't have a single honors undergraduate creative writing degree. Mm-hmm. So we only have a joint program, and I think that's really useful for students because you're simultaneously reading the great writers who have come before and developing your critical skills, learning about literary theory, while honing your craft. And, and you can yeah. see the kind of back and forth between that, and you can see the kind of synergy where uh, something that might be happening in, say, a colleague's gothic fiction class, which I don't have any... Uh, you know, I don't have any contribution to, but that will start to emerge within a student's work in their short story class, for example, yeah. that, that I am teaching. And what's nice is then you also encourage that. You say, oh, that's that's wonderful. And you, know, you can use those references, you know, the, the Gothic text that you're studying uh, on Mondays in our class on Tuesdays. And with anything that students hand in, again, this is quite standard at, at most yeah. uh, UK and North American universities now, they're also encouraged to write a creative critical essay or a reflective critical commentary. There's various names for it. But that's where they essentially reflect on their processes in writing, uh, their influences and inspirations, a, a sort of mini-essay uh, in which they look back on the process um, of what they've done and what they were trying to do. And that's really useful. And I think more and more, when I first started uh, as a student of creative writing, those tended to be more leaning towards just the reflective, almost like a journal about your creative Mm -hmm. process. I found it at Cardiff and and institutions that have a kind of focus on critical rigor, those have become more and more like an essay with uh, um, aspects and dashes of the reflective integrated into it. So you're looking at other writers as much as you're looking at your own work, if that makes sense. So um, those are kind of two of the big focuses. Beyond that, I think one of the main things um, is also creating an energy around a program. And I think that's probably a bit easier to do at the postgraduate, the MA level, simply because you have a smaller cohort of students. 
And by energy, I just mean the the excitement of working with peers, of you know studying the craft together, of sharing your work, of seeing other people uh, develop their skills, and that goes kind of beyond the boundaries of the classroom into things like open mic readings, having yeah. uh, professional guest authors come and give a talk, and uh, again, these aren't you know not would make no claims to that this is unique things that we're doing. I think all good writing programs do that. And kind of breaking down the barriers between what it means to be a student of the craft and an aspiring writer and what it means to be a professional or established writer. And I think one great thing, you often find that writers are generally, uh, maybe because it requires, the occupation requires quite a high degree of empathy. They're generally very kind and considerate and humble people. You know, obviously, we could probably think of exceptions in the media, the bad writers who might make the headlines, but the people who come and, and visit your students, generous with their time, and they're, they're, they're so down to earth, and they'll tell funny stories about mistakes they made in approaching an agent or an editor, or something that went wrong at a festival, for example, and, you know, basically putting the students at ease and making them see, well, wow, you know, this is the journey this person took to be a writer, even though it seems so far removed from what I'm doing, it kind of helps them see that basically that old story, you know, adage that everybody starts somewhere, um, and it maybe inspires them to to continue on their own journey. If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, certainly, something just from my talking to authors on this podcast, people have been so open and willing to discuss how they how they write and how they do it. Um, mm. You can see you sort of join a, a club where people know what they're doing. It's not, it's not an easy thing, and so people need a hand up to join in as well. Yeah, I, I agree fully. I think you're right that it, um, it's almost like a, a leap of faith or a dedication to a vocation. Yeah. yeah. Um, because often you're putting in a lot of work, especially at the start, for not much, uh, definitely not much financial gain, and often you know, you're not getting a lot of positive replies, say if you're submitting your poems or submitting your stories, um, you might be getting a lot of rejections and feeling disheartened and having another author come along and say, oh, you know, that that happened to me, you know, I've got a, I've got all these rejection slips and, and I still get rejected, etc. It's, it's part of part and parcel of, of being a writer. So, no, I agree fully. Yeah, definitely. I remember a writer's workshop I went to in America 20 years ago, 22 years ago, and a, write, a writer came in and he took out of a bag and let fall from his hand a stream of reject, rejection slips. Oh wow! So he, I, you know, he kept them all, and um, and he said something like, "Be prepared for rejection." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it it is a sort of vocation, and you're joining people who've made it and figured out out how to get there, and that that's great. Um, what do, what do you sort of see in your students in some of the undergrads? Um, signs that they they're okay they're on the the right track as it were mm. um, yeah that's another excellent question and I know every so often you'll see the debate flare up about whether creative writing can be taught etc um, which I think you know it's almost it's almost such a silly debate there's no need to go into it uh, because I've seen so many wonderful stories of of personal and professional development emerge from programs that I've taught on. And I do think that occasionally you'll see somebody who arrives and has clearly been working very hard um, 
and has a great skill set right from you know week one of year one and you might say that person has you know some kind of innate ability or they could have been working very very hard uh, through what I'd call high school or GCC and A level maybe they yeah. have a really inspirational teacher maybe they're more experienced maybe some A level classes were already running you know um, workshops within their literature classes or perhaps writing workshops after school so they might be just a bit more experienced and I think there are other students who within year one you might see they're working hard the work might not be particularly exceptional at that stage but they have I think what is more important in a writer and that's tenacity yeah. and um, I remember Gordon Lish saying uh, there's a famous quote, Lish, a problematic figure uh, in terms of the, the editorial relationship with Raymond Carver, and that's kind of famous, kind of back and forth. But there is a great quote, he says, it's about will, 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 desire, desire, desire. You know, that that's more important um, than the natural talent. And I think those students who kind of develop an understanding of that and the the everyday graft that has to go in to becoming a writer. Yeah. Uh, working at it and that's including the reading but also writing and experimenting and working on it you know it, it sometimes it's a bit much to ask any of us with everything going on in our lives the the doing it every day for extended hours that might not be possible but doing something and uh, you know I'm thinking of one student in particular who at the first year level was doing well but not exceptional and you wouldn't you wouldn't have kind of remembered that she worked so hard right from first year through second year um, by third year her work had progressed you know exponentially it was just mm. tremendous um, really really kind of impressive stuff and she went on to study the MA with us uh, University of Gloucestershire I remember so I, I sometimes think in the back of my mind I used to teach um, John Krakauer's Into Thin Air the mountain climbing text Okay. In a in a nonfiction module, and there's a bit where Krakauer is reflecting on climbing and climbing capabilities in mm -hmm. the other people on a team, and just in general, because he's a really experienced climber himself. And I think there's a line where he or one of the other experienced climbers says something like, "You never know who's going to come good." Right. So, you never, you never quite know, especially they're, they're talking about kind of climbing Everest, that you might have all the technical skill, but something else might get in the way yeah. and undermine your summit attempt. Um, and I sometimes think that. You look at students, you never you never know that somebody here who might, you know, not graduate at what they, you know, the, the terms, terrible term, top of the class, but two or three years down the line, you'll hear from them again saying, you know, I've, I've been working really hard on the writing. I'm thinking of coming back to do an MA. Yeah, that's now and they send a sample of work and their application, you say, wow, this person has progressed tremendously. And I remember sitting at a talk by a filmmaker, and he said something like, fruits ripen at different times. So right. I think, you know, you look back, and, and many of us could probably look back on a, at least a year of our undergraduate degree when we weren't ready to apply ourselves or dedicate ourselves, and certainly not to the level that I think, you know, all, all occupations require an enormous amount of hard work, but writing has that kind of special uh, inner drive that you need, you know, because no one else is telling you mm. this is what you have to do, and in a way it's, it's about you trying to express yourself. So it might take time for somebody to develop that and also develop a, uh, a confidence to know that you have the stories to say. 
But do you think there are certain things students do, preconceptions they've picked up perhaps, that actually are holding them back? Uh, I'm thinking, after talking with a couple of friends who are mildly interested in writing, mm-hmm. um, they're, all, they're always plotting their stories. And I, I said to them, well, okay, but why not just stop plotting and <laughs> stop trying so hard <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and just let, let the story come out, you know, think about the characters first, for example. Sure, um, yeah, the, the process of exploring a space intuitively yeah. is, is really important. And I have to admit that I, I go back and forth. I wouldn't plot a, story, a short story out mm-hmm. for a longer project, a screenplay or a novel. I do find there's a risk of getting lost without a plot base. Right. Um, but I also think you're absolutely right that it can become a form of procrastination, that you get too engrossed in the plotting yeah. and then you give another idea and then... By the time you're actually ready to write, the initial thrill or excitement that you had about that feeling has kind of tapered off, and you need that charge, you need that excitement, and you need, I think you do need that sense of some exploration, because Mm -hmm. it has to be an exciting process for you, or it's not going to be one for the reader, and if everything is carefully um, plotted out on, you know, the classic screenplay scene cards or bullet points, where there's there's no twists or turns, there's no moment where a character does something that surprises you, then I, I, I do think, you know, I, th- I, I know I, I know personally writers who would disagree with me, so it's a, it's a good debate yeah. to have. But I do think a sense of stagnation can creep into the work. And like I said, the big danger, of course, is that you don't get started at all, as you said, that you can keep putting it off and keep plotting indefinitely. Well, that's right, and I wonder if you sort of kill the story. Um, and you're you're really trying to render in stone, and and stone isn't very lively. So, yeah. um, but certainly to have some way markers that you probably need, just to know that you're meant to be heading from A to, you know, um, Q at some yeah. point, and you've just got to get there. And that seems more intuitive and organic than than knowing exactly how every page turns out, which doesn't seem much fun even. No, no, that's right. <laughs> I think. That- William Kennedy, um, American author and journalist, he said something like, if I knew how a story was going to end, I wouldn't want to write it. Right. Terrible. But I, I wouldn't need to get there because, you know, I know it already. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's very interesting. How, how has teaching students sort of changed your own way of, of thinking and your own sort of practice? I think one of the best aspects uh, in terms of its influence on me as a writer is the fact that it really teaching really forces you to know your text much better than you would if you were just a reader, obviously, but even if mm-hmm. you were studying, because you will do them several times. You know, you're fresh in your curriculum each yeah. year. But there are certain texts that you stick with that you love. Like I said, I've taught into thin air. I've moved away from. I don't have that nonfiction module anymore, but I taught that for several years and. On my short story module, you know, an Alice Monroe story, Mile City, Montana, has always been a personal favorite of mine, and I use that story. And so you've read that story probably two dozen, three dozen times. You could recite passages by heart. Yeah. And you really imbibed the text in a way, yeah. <laughs> probably more a reflection of me, that I definitely wouldn't if I wasn't a teacher. Uh, because I don't, nec- you know, talking about graft and discipline, I don't think I'd have the discipline to do that 
myself if it wasn't part of my day job, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Uh, and also then, beyond that, hearing the students' responses and seminars to those sections and to the stories they've read, you, you, it forces you to see a story from multiple angles and also in ways you might not have seen. And I know there are some people who'd be, you know, skeptical or sneer at that, but I, you know, I definitely say students have said things that really surprised me about a piece of work that I hadn't considered, having mm-hmm. read that story, you know, a dozen times, however many times, and some brilliant insights emerge in those kind of when you get a really good discussion going, and people are saying it's like that, and that person did it like this, or what about if you interpret it in this way, and it allows you, you get just this uh, really great holistic view of a piece of work and also one that is now kind of integral to how um, you see story. So you're kind of, you know, like that, the word imbibing uh, another yeah. author's work. And then that begin, that can influence what you might be doing yourself. Yeah. Now that's the very nice thing about, um, I mean, creative writing is that you can act with students in a group setting and, and all points are valid mm-hmm. as they come in and you, and you discuss a piece of work. I mean, more so than... I mean, that, that's totally different from the usual teaching model of, of, you know, just listen to this or read this, and that's yeah. that's as it is. Uh, but now you're actually asking the students to interact and think for themselves. Absolutely. And again, sometimes uh, some of the best components of those discussions might be brought in by a student from another class. Right. And, you know, if they're studying uh, literature, so they might, they'll have... You know, knowledge gleaned from or gained from a colleague, and they'll bring that in. I remember a great, uh, great discussion about Catherine Mansfield's *The Fly*, a short story I teach too, um, short, um, a kind of classic of, of, of the form, and uh, that that was really sparked, I think, by the fact that they're studying all these things in different different areas, and that again, that word synergy or the kind of crossing energies. That, that's when you think, oh, you know, this system. That's when you take real pride in, in what you do when you see students kind of have the liveliness and the enthusiasm the energy about a piece of work yes uh, that, that's where you kind of b- believe in the university system when when other days you're thinking oh the, the, the bureaucratic structures can get you down if that I won't say any more on that though I'll get in trouble, but. <laughs> sure sure now that's nice when that that sort of um, people are able to link to two disparate things together and and make something bigger out of the whole that's that's very good um, you mentioned you, you, you teach short stories, and I know your influential book is a collection of short stories by Joyce Carol Oates. Um, would you like to introduce that one? Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, so this collection I've chosen it actually has collection, or the word collector in the title. It's The Collector of Hearts. Mm-hmm. Uh, New Tales of the Grotesque is a subtitle, subheading by Joyce Carol Oates, and it was a massive book for me, and I remember very vividly the the day I picked it up still, and I found it at Book Warehouse on Lonsdale Avenue, which is a bookstore sadly no longer there, back home. And I'm reminded of it because the side of the um, pages still have a little mark. It was in the, the <laughs> a discount bin of all places, which seems... A terrible place uh, for Joyce Carol Oates to have ended up in. But I found this book, and I found another one which I considered um, making one of my picks as well. So two major books in one book shopping excursion when I was only, I think, probably fourth year university or just having graduated from BBC. And I was in a phase where I was doing that, where I, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know how. 
to go about that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'd done the writing workshops, obviously, but I was in that stuck in that a phase where I couldn't. The the idea of being a writer was so far removed from who I was and where I was at. Um, but I did have that love for 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 books, like so many aspiring writers. So I'd kind of haunt bookshops, secondhand bookshops. So I found this book and uh, Eden Robinson's Trap Lines which was equally uh, influential on me, um, especially with my first novel, Fireball. Um, she has a story called Queen of the North, which I still still teach. The Collector of Hearts is a selection of Oates's gothic fiction yeah. horror stories. And what's amazing, I mean, once you... This was probably my first introduction to Joyce Carol Oates, aside from maybe one or two anthology stories that I might have come across in classes without having a real understanding um, of the kind of breadth and width of her oeuvre. You know, just one of those writers, it goes without saying that she, she you know, she's a giant of American letters, um, of, yeah. of, of international writing scene. And she can, she can do everything, it seems, you know, with, with, uh, nonfiction, uh, short stories, her novels, um, Blonde and them, and, you know, the, the ones yeah. that everyone knows, uh, on boxing, she's got a, a, an amazing nonfiction book. On the unboxing, the collector of hearts electrified me because I think at that point I was still stuck, perhaps is a word, or maybe fixated on. We get drawn into certain styles of writing, and at that time, maybe like a lot of young writers, a lot of young male writers, you get drawn to writers like Hemingway, Carver, uh, a kind of so-called minimalist style, and this book was one of the first books that really showed me that you can go completely the other way and a kind of maximalism of language and it was maybe the door that or the key that unlocked the door I should say to a whole other side of of what I do and on the one hand you know a focus on literary fiction and you know tightly knitted the short story my short story collection Barard Inlet is about you know blue collar occupations um, themes of you know, human interactions with nature, uh, masculinity, whereas I have genre fiction, and I write speculative fiction, gothic fiction, horror yeah. fiction, uh, and to build the mood, I think, required for those types of work, um, I needed Oates to show me the way, and to show me that it's okay to, to break, and in many ways it connects to what we're talking about with creative writing workshops, and to break a lot of those rules yeah. that were taught creative writing programs um, such as, you know, that you cut all your adjectives and, and modifiers and adverbs and she goes completely the other way and in some, some sentences she'll layer you know, multiple adjectives um, just to kind of create this flow and this kind of sense of panic or impending menace and she does it I mean, it, I think the other thing is and maybe that's why it's easier to teach those rules to aspiring writers it's so hard to do that kind of writing, you know, yes. that it, yeah. it, can, it can it risks becoming, I think, what Ray Bradbury calls uh, a quadruple layered mud pie, you know. That, <laughs> uh, and he he was jokingly referring to some of his early efforts, so he was being self-deprecating about that. Yeah. Um, all style and no substance that sink without a trace, he says. Um, but in her hands, you know, it's 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 electrifying, and it completely <laughs> floored me to be. You know, you can, you can hear the excitement in my voice. I'm remembering that. And uh, it stayed with me um, since, and I think I still—it's one of those collections I return to and think about 
and the reason I chose it, I think, over the Robinson in relation to this series of podcasts. So like I said, the the Robinson collection or uh, quartet of novelettes was a big influence on on Fireball, my coming of age novel set in Vancouver. Um, this was a an influence on Your Still Beating Heart, and I yes. I wouldn't Your Still Beating Heart I don't think would exist without the collector of hearts. Yeah. I didn't even notice the, the the parallel in the title until I just re- repeated them to you both there. Um, I can but, uh, I can definitely see the 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 influence. Um, because the the collection of tales remind people of all the natural horror in the world. Um, yeah. Now I haven't read them, and I know there might well be supernatural elements as well. But a couple, well, at least one story was just about an awful situation that a child was in. Uh, the story of Schroeder's stepfather, and uh, it's 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 not a happy story. Some sort of retributive happy ending, if you like to call it that. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, like you're saying, as in as in your your novel, um, it just reminds you. Well, I'm sorry. Sometimes this the world is just a ghastly place. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a really good point. I was speaking of the influence in terms of style. Mm. That she has uh, an unflinching eye, yeah. and it, it's not easy reading some of those stories and yeah. many of her works. Um, that she she. It, it's it's it disturbs. It, there's disturbing moments yeah. throughout, and I think another one that stands out is a story that doesn't even have a title. It's just a, the title is a black bar. Certain parts of the text, she blacks out what is actually there, um, signifying you know su- perhaps suppressed memories or repression, and also the unspeakable things mm-hmm. that you know. And, and in a way, those black bars are so much more ominous than if she did describe what happens in those sequences, uh, because it's as if, you know, it's too. She's not allowing us access to it, and then it, you know, your own mind has to fill in that gap left by that the dark bar. Yeah, uh, so and and much more scary because of that. I mean, much more unsettling if you have to fill the gaps in. That's right. Yeah, and in a way, it's it's also you know. Co- um, requiring you as reader to take an active part more yes. so in that yeah. regard, um, and maybe that connects to the other the other kind of sequence of stories within it. There's several stories that do use the second person voice, and I know we talked mm. about that a bit mm. uh, last week um, when on the first podcast episode, and I think those were really powerful and important for me to see it again. You know, breaking one of those cardinal rules of creative writing that you, you often teach. Avoid in, in writing workshops. Avoid the second person. You know, it's it's really That's hard right. to do. It, it doesn't really work. And here you have someone just just you know running roughshod over everything I'd previously learned about the craft uh, and doing it um, you know with with extraordinary skill and uh, audacity. Uh, and I guess virtuoso is is the word I'm I'm looking for. You know, right. Uh, Sepulchra, uh, intensive. These several stories where you are placed in the shoes of a character to experience it, um, and uh, yeah, those stayed with me. Those kind of haunted me, as as good all good writing does. But I think Joyce well, Carol, especially uh, her. This is actually the second, uh, her first collection of tales of the grotesque was haunted tales of the grotesque, and all of them have that kind of haunting aspect, that that, mm-hmm. that lingering effect that you can't shake. Apparently, for me, even many years after, after having come across them. 
Well, that's that's formative stuff, and and rather nice that you find uh, the book in a discount bin, in a bookstore. Yeah. I mean, talk, talk about finding you know gold. Uh, that's that's amazing. It is. It. I was just thinking that before we chatted about those random serendipitous events yeah. that occur. You know, I could have found any text um, within that on that day, uh, and yet those are the two you know that stayed with me. Um, so I was just very lucky, I guess. And then you wonder, well, wh- what if you'd found something else? Would it have let? Would you have been let? What, was it partly the the place and space you were in at that time? Influence? Would I have been led in a different direction um, as a writer, as a person? But there you go. You can you can think about that in circles endlessly. Uh, so I was happy to have found the two books that I did on that day. Terrific. That's that's, that's fantastic. One of the one of the most um, you know enjoyable um, aspects of being a writer is, is when you. You know, you find a new author who means so much to you, even all that, after all these years. That's one of the joys of the thing. Mm, absolutely. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to talking again next episode about the publication of uh, You're Still Beating Heart and reaction and reviews and what you think and all that. So um, until then, Tyler, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Mark. It was great to talk to you again. In the next episode, I talked with Tyler about his experience of book launches pre-COVID and in the case of your still beating heart post-COVID. We also discussed the difficulties inherent in writing new work in the era of COVID-19. You can leave feedback on any of the episodes at podchaser.com forward slash the joy of writing or wherever you listen to your podcasts.